Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Welcome back to Body Justice. I hope all you lovely souls are just doing so wonderful. Um, And if not, I'm glad you're here. It's okay to not be okay, obviously. And I assume that many of you that listen to my podcast are listening because you struggle with disordered eating or body image. So you do not want to miss this episode. I am interviewing Jennifer Rowland. I'll go on and on about her in a second, but we are going to talk about binge eating disorder and trauma and what the connection is. In case you don't know, trauma is a part of many eating disorders, and we're going to talk specifically today about how it can be intertwined with binge eating disorder. So Jennifer Rowland is a therapist and founder of the Eating Disorder Center in Rockville, Maryland, which I am a therapist at her practice, so I have the privilege to work with her. Um, She specializes, obviously, in treating eating disorders, including anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, body image issues, anxiety, depression, and self-harm. Jennifer has experience in so many different settings, including outpatient mental health, residential program for teens, and a sexual assault crisis line. She has served as the chairwoman of Project Heal's National Network of Eating Disorder Treatment Providers, and she's received various awards. Um, for Best of Rockville Therapists in 2020 and 2021. Jennifer has been named one of the top eating disorder experts in the country by Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center. Um, She's got so many awesome certificates and trainings. Um, She's been interviewed um, about eating disorders on television, including NBC, ABC, Fox, CBS, and PBS. She's also been interviewed on the Washington Post, Time Magazine, U.S. News, Forbes, the Huffington Post, Seventeen Magazine, Style Magazine, and Esquire. Um, she's the co-author of her latest book, The Inside Scoop of Eating Disorder Recovery, with her friend Colleen Reichman. Um, this is a book that has advice from two therapists who have been there, and I've personally read it myself. It is awesome. If you have not read it yet and you're in recovery, you need this book. As someone who's personally been through recovery myself, I can tell you this is the book that I wish I had when I was struggling. Um, so anyways, I could go on and on, like I said, but basically Jennifer is awesome. I am so happy I get to work with her and interview her for a change um, on the podcast. So without further ado, here she is. So Jennifer, can you share with listeners a little bit about who you are, what you're passionate about, and how you identify? Sure. So I am an eating disorder therapist and founder of the Eating Disorder Center, which is a group practice that 
different states and then also provides recovery coaching worldwide. Um, I also recently wrote a book with one of my good friends, Dr. Colleen Reichman called The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery. And in terms of how I identify, I'm a white cisgender female. And I also think it's important to kind of um, point out that I also live with thin privilege. So what that means is, you know, I'm able to find clothing in stores in my size. When I go to the doctor, I'm not given, you know, a weight loss talk. And so I just think in any conversation about bodies, it's important to point out privilege. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for doing that. Um, definitely important because, and I identify similarly in the thin privilege part and we work with a variety of clients and we just always have to acknowledge that. Yeah, um, absolutely. It sounds like you are passionate about all things eating disorder recovery. Uh, um, I'm very passionate about that. And I think it's pretty publicly out there at this point that a big inspiration for wanting to work with eating disorders was my own recovery from an eating disorder and, you know, overcoming that struggle and then just wanting to give back to other people who are currently in the midst of struggling. Yeah, that's so awesome. And you do so much like your Instagram platform and everything is such a, a great resource for people. And then the group practice and the book, like you just, you're awesome. <laughs> Well, you're awesome too. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know if we should also disclose to people that you work with my um, group practice, but I yes. love seeing your Instagram. I love the work that you do and you freaking rock. So same page. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And yes, I work with Jennifer and it's very interesting to be the one interviewing her, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, since we're talking about binge eating disorder and trauma today, can you define for listeners what binge eating disorder is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to note, or I guess interesting to note that binge eating disorder actually wasn't even added into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I wanna say until 2013. Um, however, obviously it's been around for as long as other eating disorders. So I think that was really due to stigma. Um, but the way that the DSM defines binge eating disorder is recurrent episodes of binge eating. They define it as happening at least once a week for every, for three months, a three month period. And how a binge is defined is eating more in a short period of time. So a one to two hour period, um, eating more food than the average person under the same circumstances would consume. And it's associated with feelings of shame and guilt, this feeling of being quote unquote out of control, eating more quickly than usual, often binging happening in secret because of shame and guilt. And then typically there's feelings of disgust or shame after a binge eating episode. And then also the DSM talks about the person having distress around the binge eating. So it's causing distress in their life and might be impacting their life in other areas as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a great definition. And so wild that it wasn't included until the, the latest 2013 DSM. Because um, it's the most common eating disorder, right? Right. And I don't know everything about the history of the DSM or anything like that. But 
my sense is that there's a fair amount of weight stigma and has been built into the DSM, you know, similarly to how at one time, you know, like identifying as LGBTQIA was seen as a mental illness, which is, mm -hmm. you know, not okay. Um, the DSM is laden with prejudice and bias and reflective of the times in that regard. And so I think basically for a long time, anorexia and bulimia were the eating disorders that were talked about and binge eating disorder was really not talked about as much. And I think that is even, you know, that similar trend continues now, even in the eating disorder community. And I also think there's a lot more shame and stigma for people. And of course there's shame and stigma, you know, around all eating disorders, but I think anorexia is often seen as like this egocentric illness in the sense of people who are struggling and who might lose weight initially, although of course not every eating disorder causes weight loss are often praised, right? Um, whereas for people struggling with binge eating, there's often a lot of shame, secrecy, and this big societal stereotype of someone who's like gluttonous or out of control. Um, and it's not glorified in the same way that anorexia is kind of in the media. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And it's, it just makes it that much harder for people to reach out for help. Yeah. What are some of the other common misconceptions that you see about binge eating disorder? Yeah, there's so many. I think one is that it's all about willpower. And so similar to that belief is this idea of like, I think this is basically what Food Addicts Anonymous and OA mm -hmm. kind of follow in the sense of I am addicted to food and I have to thereby cut out certain foods and have complete abstinence. And for many of us in the recovery world, we've seen that that approach does not work and that trying to use a common substance abuse approach, food, which is a human need and necessity doesn't really work. And in fact, we have to often be doing the opposite with people of helping them to reintroduce some of those off limits foods. So again, that idea of this is just a willpower issue. I just need to not have those foods in my house. Um, so not recognizing that deprivation and restriction can also trigger binge eating. I think that's a big um, myth. Mm -hmm. And I think another one is this idea that everyone who binge eats is in a larger body and everyone in a larger body struggles with quote unquote overeating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a eating disorder therapist, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen that we can't meet a client, look at them and say, I know what eating disorder you're struggling with. And like other eating disorders, people with binge eating disorder are you know, all shapes, sizes, races, genders. Um, so I think that's another big myth is that everyone who struggles with binge eating is in a larger body um, and everyone in a larger body with an eating disorder must binge, which is completely untrue. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And when I get a client struggling with binge eating disorder, sometimes they're shocked when I tell them the treatment doesn't involve that quote unquote food addiction model and that I'm going to actually ask them to eat more and more regularly. Um, I wonder if you see that too, just that initial kind of, what do you mean? I'm not going to go on a diet. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see that too. And I think for some of my clients, it's like, 
when they come to me, not everyone, but for some folks, by the time they've come to me, they've had years of trying it with FA or OA or this kind of like restrictive approach from other therapists. And I think there's surprise, but also sometimes there's this sense of relief of like, mm-hmm. oh, so like there's another way to work on this, um, which I think can be helpful. And it's paradoxical. I think um, it just popped into my head, like similarly to OCD treatment or any other really kind of treatment where one might think, oh, well, the goal is to avoid like the distressing thoughts, like, mm-hmm. or in this case, like the foods that trigger anxiety or that that person feels quote unquote out of control around, like logically it's like, okay, well, I just need to, you know, cut that out. But that actually has the opposite effect and can make things much worse for most people. Totally. Yeah. It requires so much like trust in the therapist, like trust between client and therapist and a lot of blind faith that you're going to ask me to do this thing that feels so paradoxical, but I've tried everything else. So I'm going to give this a shot. And um, I get that sense of relief from clients too, with ambivalence, like ambivalence and relief. (laughs) Yeah. I think both of those feelings are so common in recovery, whatever the eating disorder is. But I think, yeah, again, the cultural narrative around binge eating and binge eating disorder treatment is just so off that again, it can sound like what you're telling them is something they haven't heard before or just like completely against what they thought was the case. But I find that as clients take that leap of faith and work to reintroduce those foods and we work on all the binge eating triggers, you know, eventually they start to get it and they're like, okay, like I binged on this. I know I need to work on like giving myself permission to eat this. Mm-hmm, definitely. And real quick for listeners, can we debunk that food, sugar, food slash sugar addiction myth? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so if someone's interested in looking at the research, Marcy Evans RD, if you just like Google, what's the research on sugar addiction? She has a really good Um, synopsis, I think, of what the research has shown us so far. And basically, this concept is not supported by the research. And I think we don't want to discount, right, someone's lived experience where it might feel like they're addicted to food, but that doesn't mean that they actually are, if that makes sense, even Mm -hmm. if that feels like the case. And I think people who believe in the concept of sugar addiction will say, well, when I let myself eat sugar, I feel out of control. Whereas people who've been in this field for a while know that often one element of that can be the restriction. So if I'm restricting donuts, I never let myself have a donut. I think they're bad. Or I beat myself up every time I eat a donut. Well, let's say then my fiance comes home with a box of donuts like what is likely to happen? You know, if Mm -hmm. I put it off limits, put it on this pedestal, told myself I can't have them. Um, It's very similar to what happened in the beginning of COVID with toilet paper. When toilet paper was scarce, people were saying, oh my gosh, like we all need toilet paper and there's not a lot of it and it's limited. And people started hoarding toilet paper. I mean, that's just the natural inclination when something is a scarce resource is to take more of it. And that is something that helped us evolutionarily to survive, right? Like in times of famine, they had times of feast and time. And because we didn't know, you know, back in the stone age, when we were next going to get food, 
it made sense to eat as much as possible when we came upon a food source to ensure our survival in those times of famine. So that's one thing that's important to point out. And the second argument that people give around this concept of sugar addiction is they'll say, well, um, you know, parts of your brain light up like the pleasure centers, which is the same part of your brain that lights up, you know, when you do drugs. So this proves that food addiction is a thing. And other things that light up that pleasure center include like hugging your friend, holding a baby, right? So we wouldn't say that any of those things are addictive. So just because something gives pleasure does not mean that that thing is addictive. Mm -hmm. And the other element of it is that even if I hadn't seen any of the research, just my lived experience, both personally and also working with clients is that if truly sugar was an addictive drug like cocaine, it would, for those of us who also work with substance use, like you can't tell someone, oh, you can have just like a little bit of cocaine, like I'll learn to manage it, right? Like mm -hmm. that's not how substance abuse treatment tends to work. Of course, there's no one path to recovery, um, but we can acknowledge that like certain substances are addictive, right? Um, and certain people have that genetic element in their brain that predisposes them to addiction. And so they can't use that substance moderately, right? Um, mm -hmm. And with food, that's not the case. So if in fact, again, sugar was addictive, then I wouldn't have all these clients who struggled with binging for years who are able to recover and eat those same foods and incorporate them back in and be totally fine. Um, because the problem isn't the food itself. The problem is a variety of other factors, which I'm sure we're going to get into, such as scarcity, restriction, which can be physical or emotional. So again, the problem isn't the food itself. The problem is a lot of other factors going on and thereby removing the food itself doesn't actually solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that's a perfect um, reason. All the you know scientific reasons why food is not an addiction. Were you ever on a debate team? I feel like you'd be really good at that. <laughs> You're so sweet. I was never on a debate team. I went to a tiny high school and they didn't have that, but we did. I remember like some class debates in one of my classes and I was good at it. So thank you <laughs> for <laughs> So what are some of those common triggers for binge eating disorder and how do we begin, you know, treating it? Yeah. So in terms of triggers, I guess if we were going to list out a few of the main ones, but again, that's going to vary person to person, but the number one trigger that I see often is restriction. And that can look like physical restriction, which is either limiting my calories that I'm eating, like counting calories, telling myself, you know, I can't go over X amount of calories that could look like limiting my intake of certain macronutrients. So telling myself I'm not eating carbs or I'm not eating sugar, right? And maybe I'm still getting my caloric needs. That could also look like emotional restriction. So emotional restriction is I tell myself, you know what, I'm going to be quote unquote good today. I'm going to eat clean or whatever diet um, of the day is. And then I, you know, see a donut, it looks good. I feel like I can't quote unquote control myself. I eat it and I beat myself up over it. And I say, you know what? I'll restart my diet tomorrow. 
So having like a restrictive mindset around food, that could be around, again, the portion of food that I allow myself to eat, that could be beating myself up for eating something, or even again, that idea of, you know what, I'm not going to have it again tomorrow, like starting tomorrow, I'm going to cut this out. So like that promise of future restriction is one big trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is emotional factors and, or well, actually this is the third one. The second one is habituation and habituation is this idea of neurons that wire together, neurons that fire together, wire together. And the example that I like to give of this is it's been now a couple years, but a couple years ago I moved and I didn't move that far away um, in Rockville, but I caught myself after work driving to my old apartment a couple of times and didn't catch myself until I was almost there. Why did I do that? Um, ultimately, I had kind of memorized that path in my brain of going from work to my old apartment to where it was very automatic to where I didn't even think about it. And so I just kind of drove there without thinking about it. And the same thing can happen with somebody who habitually binges to where they might at some point say, you know what, there was no trigger. I just get home. I watch my show and I binge, right? So this becomes like a feedback loop of behaviors that is very habitual and automatic. And then the third big factor is emotional factors. And so what I've heard a lot from clients in the past and currently is this idea of needing to take a break. So for instance, some clients are very high achieving, perfectionistic, have a lot going on in their life, and they don't give themselves permission often to take a break or like rest. And so the binging behavior is the one time where they are not having to be on. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's one example. Also, loneliness can be another big trigger. And of course, trauma, which can include, you know, all different kinds of trauma and also growing up among like food insecurity, food scarcity, um, because again, that can create, you know, a habitual pattern of binging in response to that like restrictive mindset of not knowing when I'm going to get food again, and that feeling very unsafe and scary. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then I guess the last little one I'll mention, because there's so many is kind of the, um, I call it like the fuck it mentality, which is what I talked about a little bit before of like, oh, like I'm on this diet or I'm trying to eat this certain way. And I just ate something that I feel badly about. I'll use the donut example again. And so your brain might tell you, well, fuck it. I already messed up my quote unquote diet. And so now I'm just going to eat the whole box of donuts. Again, it's that very like black or white, all or nothing thinking, which is so common for a lot of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I always tell clients that's like dropping your phone on the ground and then like smashing it. Um, That black and white, you know, mentality. Absolutely. Yeah. And hearing you talk about, you know, the history of food scarcity. So even if someone is not currently physically or mentally restricting, just that history alone um, can trigger that drive to to binge eat out of a a protective lens. Yeah. Um, Which is like a trauma in itself, like growing up in a food scarce environment is trauma. Um, Yes. Can you share with listeners a little bit more about how trauma plays a role in binge eating disorder? Sure. So there was a really good book. I think it's 
called um, Treating Self-Destructive Behaviors and Trauma Survivors. And this book talks about some of the like neurobiology of eating disorders and like just the way that people use eating disorder behaviors. And again, this is typically a subconscious process, but with symptoms of hyper and hypo arousal. And I can explain what that is a little bit, but essentially one way to explain how binge eating relates to trauma is if I'm a trauma survivor, which I am, um, I have a window of tolerance, right? And within the window of tolerance is where I feel comfortable. I feel okay. I feel emotionally regulated. Um, up above that window of tolerance is hyperarousal and down below is hypoarousal. Um, and essentially, if I'm feeling dysregulated, either, you know, hyperaroused, I'm feeling anxious, right? Um, I'm feeling dissociated, I'm feeling depressed, or like, again, that that's more hype, hypoarousal, like the depression. Mm -hmm. um, bring me back into my window of tolerance. So it can help me to feel more emotionally regulated in that moment. The and binge eating itself can bring you right. back to that window of tolerance. Exactly. It can induce the parasympathetic nervous system and like that rest and relaxation response. Um, and you and I know that typically that lasts for like one to three minutes and then people mm -hmm. often feel much worse after. But I always say that I think binge eating comes from a good place. Like ultimately it's a resilient survival strategy. It just backfires in the long run. So long-winded way of saying that for people who struggle with trauma, often there's nervous system dysregulation and active binge eating can provide that temporary feeling of numbing, of calm, of comfort. It, could, it might snap me out of dissociation, right? So that's one kind of way that people are using eating disorder behaviors to try to cope with trauma. And again, I think taking it outside of the nervous system for a moment, often when we go through trauma, there can be a sense of like, shame of, you know, struggling to honor my body's needs because maybe I don't feel deserving. Like it can create a lot of really unhelpful core beliefs, which can then contribute to the development of an eating disorder for people who have some of these other, you know, biopsychosocial factors. Um, for instance, you know, let's say trauma, something I see a lot with clients is trauma feels incredibly out of control. And so for many clients, restricting is one way they're attempting to try to feel more in control. And for some folks, restricting will then lead into binge eating. Um, mm -hmm. So you can kind of see how that how that cycle can be created. Mm -hmm. Another big one I see too with trauma and, and binging is that it becomes like this self-punishing cycle. Um, like I don't deserve to have a good relationship with food and, you know, I need to punish myself, punish my body um, to kind of feel more protected or whatever, you know, the core beliefs of the trauma came to be. Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. I think as you've seen and I've seen for some people, the eating disorder behaviors function more as punishment for other people, they don't. But I think that is also a very common one. And I think the other thing that I see a lot is some for some trauma survivors, they feel detached from other people. They struggle with trust issues, especially if it was a relational trauma. And it's this idea of, well, food is the one thing that never leaves me, right? Like food was always there for me when I needed it. 
So that can be another interplay between trauma and eating disorders. Yes, that's such a good point. And it's so fascinating to hear the neurological like window of tolerance research. I didn't even know that. Um, but that makes so much sense because it does provide that temporary calming effect. Exactly. Um, and it's really the same thing with eating disorder behaviors across the board, you know, whether it's restriction, binging, purging, they all serve different functions in terms of bringing people back to their window of tolerance very temporarily. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I see a lot with clients is that they might say that they haven't experienced trauma before. Um, but when we dig a little deeper, there are traumas. They're just identifying traumas as these like big T traumas. Um, can we talk about the difference between the big T and little T traumas? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so common. That's something I've definitely experience with clients too. So big T traumas are what we typically think about when we think about trauma, things where people have a fear for their life, you know, they are, their body is violated in some type of way that that feeling of helplessness right in the moment. Um, and obviously that can be incredibly traumatic. Small T traumas are things that exceed our ability to cope in the moment and can with functioning. And those are things that might be more common. But again, just because something is more frequently occurring doesn't mean that it's less traumatic. So that could be something like parents going through a divorce, infidelity, um, you know, moving, job loss. So all of those things can be little t traumas. And I think while for some people it can be helpful to kind of make the distinction between big T and little t traumas. I think when I work with clients, I, I tend to more broadly define trauma as anything that overwhelms our nervous system's ability to cope in that moment. And I like that definition because like we were talking about, so many people, I think, minimize their trauma or don't even see it as a trauma until later on in therapy. And so it's important to say, like, again, it doesn't matter what it was, like anything that overwhelms your nervous system's ability to cope can be traumatic. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Because what I see is even after we've established that, yes, it was traumatic, um, the client will often minimize, you know, well, other people have it worse. And I think it is so important to remind clients, like, it doesn't, you can't compare, like, your life is your life. And this situation overwhelmed your nervous system. And it's just as impactful. You can't, you know, it's not helpful to compare. Yeah, I completely agree. And we'll see that. I mean, as you know, even with the big T traumas, and I think part of that is so many trauma survivors blame themselves. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's a protective coping strategy, right? If I believe what happened to me wasn't that bad, that's my brain's attempt to cope with what happened by minimizing it. But typically, that just becomes super invalidating and unhelpful for people in the long run. Yes, agree. It's totally a, a coping strategy. It's it's painful to accept that what happened to you was not right. And it's and then you have to face those big scary emotions. It's like when you once you see it, it's really hard to look back. Exactly. So, you know, if binge eating is someone's way of managing trauma and that's their only way they know how to manage the trauma symptoms, what are some things you would do to help clients heal from trauma? not using the binging? 
there's a few things. I mean, first off, just starting with that kind of psychoeducation, like we talked about of how like biologically, right, this is inducing that sense of like relaxation or calm or bringing you back to your window of tolerance. And then looking at what are other things that I can do that are more in alignment with my values that bring me back into my window of tolerance. And then also getting to the root and actually doing the trauma therapy, whether that's internal family systems work, CPT, EMDR, like having clients do the trauma therapy. And as part of that, like learn trauma stabilization and grounding exercises. So that way we're also not just putting band-aids on, you know, the trauma and that they're actually, you know, helping themselves in terms of like symptoms like dissociation or hypo or hyper arousal. So helping them to work through um, that in trauma therapy as well. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It's it's almost like until we heal kind of the root, those behaviors will, are probably going to stick around for some time because they are protective. Exactly. And I think as part of treatment, we have to be both looking at like the behaviors that are coming out. You know, if we think of the iceberg under the water, like seeing the eating disorder behaviors, we have to directly address those. And then we also have to look at the underlying factors that are maintaining the behaviors and like how the person is using them to cope so that we're not just playing whack-a-mole where then suddenly they develop different behaviors, right? To try to cope with this underlying issue. Yes, absolutely. Um, So one thing I'm really getting from all of this, and I hope listeners are too, is to really have compassion for your binging. I know it's hard to, to accept and say that, but really the binging is a survival strategy and we can learn new strategies, but in the meantime, like this is what helped you and it's okay to have compassion for that. Yeah. Um, a hundred percent. And I think that's something probably both you and I work on with clients because shaming yourself for binging actually tends to only perpetuate more binging. And like you and I both said, it's also like a very resilient way that somebody has coped and gotten through their life and survived. And like, it might not be serving them anymore. And it might Mm -hmm. be something they want to challenge. Absolutely. So switching gears a little bit, you've recently wrote a book. Um, What inspired you to write this? And is there anything you want to share with listeners about the book? Trying to think back to what inspired me, I guess. I kind of had the idea of writing a book where each chapter was on like a different recovery topic and also where it incorporated things that are traditionally not talked about in the vast majority of eating disorder treatment books, such as fat positivity, you know, with authors like guest authors with lived experience, trauma, orthorexia, binge eating. So I wanted it kind of all to be in one place in like a short kind of easy, easily accessible guidebook. And really just thinking about kind of what would have helped me when I was starting recovery, because I remember picking up a book at the bookstore when I was like fresh in recovery and unhelpful book, but there was a lot missing from there. And I just think that it would have probably saved me like a lot of time and struggle to know about things like the health at every size movement and fat acceptance and orthorexia and interplay with trauma right when I was starting out in recovery. But I think the book is helpful really for anyone, no matter what stage of recovery you're at. And we talk about things like partial recovery, 
um, in the book as well. And I mentioned before, but it was co-authored with one of my good friends, Dr. Colleen Reichman. I ended up going to her and saying, hey, I have this idea. And she was like, oh my gosh, I've been working on like a um, outline for that, a book just like that for years. And I was like, perfect. Like, mm -hmm. um, so kind of, it was very serendipitous and things just kind of all came together. But I guess long-winded way of saying, I wanted to help people in a way that I thought would have been helpful for me when I was starting out in recovery and later into my recovery. And I wanted to create something that would be accessible to people who maybe aren't my clients or aren't able to become my clients or clients of our practice, where they could still get some resources and help, even if they're never a client in our practice, essentially. Yes, I love that. And I finished your book in like three days. It was so good. Aww, that's <laughs> and, so sweet. Yes. And even, you know, myself been recovered for years, but I had that same reflection of like, this would have been so great if it, if it was published like back then, because yeah, a lot of recovery books out there, while there are some good ones, they don't provide like the quick tools and they don't have like those other topics like health at every size and fat acceptance. It's definitely such a great book and I've recommended it to so many clients. Oh, well, that means a lot to me. And yeah, we tried to make it interactive as well. So I put like journal prompts and different exercises kind of throughout it because I've been doing journal prompts on my Instagram for a while and people have found them to be really helpful. So yeah, there was just a lot that I kind of wanted to put in there. And my thing pretty much when I'm doing anything is like, if it helps one person in their recovery, like that it's worth it to me. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've obviously helped so many. Didn't it make like the number one best-selling book in the recovery section of Amazon? Yeah. Um, which was really awesome and exciting. And, you know, I'm really grateful to colleagues and my team and followers on social media who were all like super jazzed about the book and supported it. Um, and it's just been really fun to like see people posting pictures with it from all over the world and buying mm -hmm. it from all over the world. So yeah, I think ultimately my aim is just to like reach as many people as possible in like whatever avenue that I can. And I think I saw the book as kind of one way to do that. Totally. Is it in different languages too, for people like worldwide? It's not right now. I think I'm not a hundred percent sure how that works, but I think enough people would have to request it. And then like somebody in that country would have to pick it up. Um, but I do know that I've gotten messages from people in Italy and other places kind of all over um, who had purchased it, who also speak English in addition to it. Especially when, as you know, in other parts of the world, um, eating disorder treatment is either non-existent or kind of a hot mess. So it's nice to be able to provide resources to people, you know, who aren't just in the United States as well. Agreed. Yes. And for those of you that don't know, the title of our book is the Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery. Right, Jen? Yes. Um, it was a fun play on words and we both just happened to really like ice cream. So we decided to put a scoop of ice cream on the cover. Yes, it's so cute. <laughs> um, so what does the term body justice mean to you, Jen? 
I think what it means to me, and I love that that's the title of your podcast, by the way, I think that's awesome, is almost like beyond body image in the sense of body image, like how we feel about our bodies and the perception of our bodies is important, right? Because it can get in the way of so many people, so many people living their best lives. And I think we have to look at the roots of that and we have to dismantle those systems of oppression that have contributed, you know, such as racism, sexism, ableism, um, ageism. We have to start to look at all those systems of oppression and we have to both advocate, you know, for people to overcome body image issues, right? They're holding them back in their life. And we have to start to look as well at one of the roots of some of these issues in terms of like the ideal standard of beauty. And then also just things in terms of like access to care, right? And racism in healthcare and fat phobia in healthcare, right? So long-winded way of saying to me, body justice is basically not settling and not stopping with activism until every person, regardless of race, weight, age, you know, regardless of their marginalized identity is receiving, um, you know, equitable treatment and actually able to access things like healthcare and able to feel safe walking down the street, right? That ultimately it means justice and with a particular emphasis on marginalized groups um, that face so much oppression and stigma in our society. Mm -hmm. That was a great definition. I love hearing everyone's versions of body justice. They all have similar themes and it's, it's just so awesome to ask that to every guest. Yeah, um, and um, sorry, I was just gonna add um, that again, I think it's really important what you're doing with and just like the work you do with clients because I think the tides are kind of turning in the eating disorder field where there's more of a social justice element. But I think there's still a long way to go in terms of all the unlearning that has to happen and advocacy work. And so I just think it's awesome that you highlight social justice issues in addition to eating disorder stuff. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely all a part of the mission. And just because I feel like really healing, you know, we have to look at every layer, not just the individual, but the macro system too, that is creating so much of these individual problems. Absolutely. So Jen, where can listeners find you? They can find me on Instagram. I'm over at Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R underscore Roland, R as in rock, O-L-L-I-N, or they can find me via our website if they want to reach out to me or a member of the team at www.theeatingdisordercenter.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It was just awesome to talk to you about this. You have so much knowledge and I'm sure it's going to help a lot of the listeners. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was fun and I look forward to sharing it. I hope you guys loved this interview as much as I did, and I hope you got so much out of it, and I hope this helps you on your journey to recovery. Really quick before we go, I want to let you know again about my online course, Essential Skills for Eating Disorder Recovery. So if you want to know my top skills for helping my clients recover from eating disorders and also the skills that helped me recover, and if you're ready to finally make peace with food in your body, 
this course is for you. This is an online self-paced course with various topics. It is designed to help you fast track your recovery and it's skills-based with evidence-based practices. You will get two and a half hours of video content um, plus PDFs, journal prompts, and experiential exercises to help you on your journey. So whether you're personally struggling, maybe you're supporting someone who is, or you're a provider yourself, this course is for you. I'm an eating disorder specialist, I'm a licensed therapist, and I've personally recovered from an eating disorder. So in this course, I infuse both my clinical expertise and personal experience into this course. This course is not a substitute for therapy, rather it's an adjunct to your recovery. Your purchase of this course does not constitute a provider-patient relationship, um, but this course, like I said, is designed to help fast-track your journey. So if you, may, you don't have accesses to a lot of recovery resources, this course is great for you. Um, again, it is also a great adjunct if you're in treatment already, and this will help just kind of fast-track your journey. So you can find this course in my Instagram bio link at bodyjustice.therapist. I'll also put a link to this in my show notes and to the people who have purchased it already. Thank you so much. Um, I've got so much good feedback and so I know you'll love it. Go check it out. And of course, if you need a discount code because finances are a barrier, you can always DM me on Instagram. My mission is to make this course accessible to anyone that needs it. So I hope you have all have enjoyed this episode and I will talk to you lovely souls later. Oh, 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 oh,